Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 12. This is um, so much anticipation, for me at least, I know for those of us who have been thinking about this, concerning this, this new series, this new focus for this year, which we're calling The Cross and the Crown. Um, I know... Um, I believe this is exactly where the Lord wants us to be. I believe we are just where he wants us in our focus, in, um, in, in, in where we've come to. And that in this time together, uh, for however long it lasts, as we make the cross and the crown our focus, that um, there will be immediate impact and um, present, current blessing, benefit, uh, impact, Um, I'll say more about that later, that will happen, I believe, straight away this year, this month, this week, today, this afternoon, this morning, there'll be impact on us because of what God will show us. But I also want to believe that um, there will be things the Lord says to us, shows us this year that will change our lives forever. And um, we'll only only be able to look back and say um, how the Lord was with us in this time. So just a small expectation. John chapter 12, um, reading from verse 20. Uh, My task this morning is an introduction. That doesn't mean it will be short uh, or skimpy, but to try and present something that will introduce themes that we will consider over the next few um, weeks and months. John 12.20, reading from the Holman. Now, some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. That's the festival of Passover. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said, and, and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, This voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, um, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. It's a fascinating passage, and we'll come back to it uh, in a moment. But I, I want to just say a few things up front about the cross. I was standing there this morning, just saying, Lord, what could I say about the cross? Who am I to talk about your cross, Lord? Nevertheless, I, I shall do my best. The cross, first of all, is not a logo. The cross is not the logo of the church. The cross is not an icon to be worshipped. The cross is not a pendant to wear around the neck, although, obviously, feel free to do that. The cross is not about martyrdom or heroism. The cross was not an accident or a mistake. And nor is the cross simply the, the mechanics by which we're forgiven. The cross is much, much more than that. I want to suggest the cross is the epicenter of all things. The cross is the center point of the universe. The cross stands at the crossroads of time and eternity. God's eternal plan, God's eternal provision breaking into our human need. At the cross, time and eternity crossed one another, coincided together. The cross broke into our time-space world as the, the ultimate revelation of God and his purpose for all things. Then I want to say our focus is on the cross and the crown because it will concern, it concerns the death, the burial, the mighty resurrection, which we've enjoyed in our worship this morning, and the glorious ascension of King Jesus. And then to say, why, why this topic, why this focus, and why now? There are, um, there's, there's a million ways to answer that question. Why not, would be one of them. But um, I think, first of all, that the big issues of our day, nationalism, gender, 
marriage. Concern, as we said last year, concern aspects of authority, of government, of who rules. And the cross will leave us in no doubt. Or perhaps I should say the crown leaves us in no doubt who rules. Another reason why, why this and why now is that um, isn't there a great need for identity? Yes. Isn't, that, isn't that one of the issues that right. um, people are, are almost becoming hysterical about? Who are we? Uh, what defines us? Um, many are anxious, nervous, um, confused, unsure about identity, who they are. And the cross and the crown define perfectly who we are, why we're here, where we're going. And the third reason I would say why this and why now is there is a great need for an increased measure of real power in this church, in the church, in this church. And God directed us at the Bible week last year, in a prophetic word, and he said this. This was a word to the, uh, the three elders. I'm going to give you a fresh measure of power. You will understand more about, the cross, about what the cross has achieved, and you will apply it in all its reality to see sickness banished. You will be known as a place of miracle, as the revelation of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished breaks afresh on your life. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit has brought us here to this place. And and it's not um, going... uh, Focusing on the cross is not going back to basics, although although this is foundational, essential, and... um, we never go forward from this place. But God is not bringing us back to something. He's taking us on into something. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I, I am determined to know nothing except Christ crucified. This is the start, the middle, the beginning, the end, the ultimate. We, we need to consider what happened on the cross What was the crucifixion all about? What did Jesus accomplish in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension? And um, there are many theories of what people call the atonement. Many theories of, of, of what happened on the cross, what the cross is all about. They are all theories. And um, in my view, most of them are, are, far, are too limited, too small, too simplistic too um, self-man-centered, trying to explain something, almost something mathematical that happened, a transaction that took place on the cross. What did Jesus do for me? The cross, I want to put it to you, the cross means far more than forgiveness for sin. Far more than justification by faith. Far more than an entitlement to heaven. It is all those things but it's more than that. The cross is far bigger, far more breathtaking in its range, its scope, its impact than we could ever take in. Somebody 
wrote this, and I like this phrase. He said, the theories about atonement are at their best battered little signposts <laughs> pointing us towards a larger reality. I hope we can see as much as he will graciously show us. I think um, the only way to see as much as possible is to start where God starts. And so I'd like to take you back to Genesis. This isn't really where God starts, but this is, this is, the, this is the beginning of us knowing something of God. And um, we can't have a proper grasp of any doctrine, any aspect of theology, without really understanding the big story, the big story of the Bible. It, it won't do to... Um, just take, take certain concepts and find a few proof texts to, to justify those concepts. We've got to look at the big story of the Bible if we're really going to grasp what these things are all about. And so we find Genesis chapters 1 to 3. We've been here before, haven't we? Once or twice. Genesis chapters 1 to 3 really set the scene, really provide the essentials the, um, the, the starting blocks for us for this journey. I did have a little image in my mind before while we were worshipping of, of all of us, all of us, hand in hand, great big company of us on a journey. God taking us on a journey into what he wants to show us, what he wants to do amongst us. So what we find in Genesis, um, I, I will assume a certain level of... Um, of, of, of knowledge here, but if, if, if this isn't clear to you, please have a read of these chapters. What we find in Genesis, first of all, is that God creates the heavens and the earth. That's what um, verse 1 tells us. The, very, the, the opening verse of the Bible tells us God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens were God's dwelling place. The earth was man's dwelling place. But those, the heavens and the earth were in perfect harmony together. And um, God used to walk on the earth in the cool of the evening. And um, there was almost, it, was al- it was almost seamless between earth and heaven. In fact, in the creation, there comes a time where God has to create, um, c- separate some waters to create the sky to sort of start to bring some sort of distinction between heaven and earth. It began all together, if I could put it that way. Earth came out of the heavens or something like that. Um, But certainly God's rule, God's kingdom was um, expressed on earth just as it is in heaven. Perfect harmony between heaven and earth. And then we find, if you look at verse 26 and onwards, that God created mankind. And it says he created men and women in his image. Um, The man and the woman were image bearers. They were created to bear the image of God, to express God, to represent God, to, to, be, to um, it, it, it should have been possible for any, any other created being to look at man and see something of God, because the man alone was made in the image of God. He was there for creation to look at and see something of God, an image bearer. And, the, and God gave the man and the woman, if you look at... Um, Verse 28, 
God blessed them, that's important, we'll come back to that, and gave them a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over the other created beings. God gave the man and the woman, his image bearers, rule and dominion. And then we find um, in chapter 2 and verse 16 and onwards that God commanded the man not to eat from one of the two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge. There were two trees there, the tree of knowledge, the tree of life. And God commanded the man, in fact, he, he really said to the man, I'm, gi- I'm giving you everything, Adam, except the fruit from that tree. And he warned him that the consequence of eating from the tree of knowledge was, would be death. Consequences were clearly set out. Death would be the result of disobedience. And then we find um, in chapter 3 that a serpent appears. And this is a, an animal inhabited by the devil, the deceiver, the evil one. The, the serpent is, is the bodily expression of a created being, a fallen angel, who has himself already rebelled against God and, and sought to usurp his authority. And the serpent comes to deceive mankind and to lead them into sin. And chapter 3 tells us the terrible story of Adam rebelling against God's authority, of placing the serpent's word, which was a lie, above God's word, which was the truth, and thereby surrendering some of his God-given authority, the man's dominion, some of it was surrendered. Instead of now ruling over creation, one of the consequences, which we'll come on to a second, is that he becomes subservient to it. Adam and Eve, as a consequence, were estranged from God. Verse 7 of chapter 3 tells us their eyes were open, they became afraid of God, they hid from God, and when God walked in the garden that day, at the end of that catastrophic day, and he called out to them, where are you? By the way, those three words are about as significant as it gets, isn't it? Where are you? Where are you in relation to me, God says. And at the end of that day, we understand there's been a change in the order of things. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. And what we find in verse 14 is that the Lord curses the serpent. And um, he also declares in chapter 3, verse 15, that the offspring of the woman will strike or crush the head of the serpent. This is a promise that Jesus, born of a woman, born with no male intervention, that Jesus will ultimately destroy the evil one. The promise is there in Genesis chapter 3. Note carefully that God, in response to Adam's rebellion, Adam's sin, the fall of man, 
God curses the serpent in verse 14. He curses the ground halfway through verse 17. But he does not curse the man and the woman. There are real and terrible consequences of their sins. Labor pains for the woman. Painful labor for the man. An estrangement from God. Death as a certainty. Many consequences of the fall, but they weren't cursed. In fact, God clothed them. God covered them. Because, you know, God had already blessed them. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them. Now, God doesn't reverse his blessing. He, he lets the consequences run their course. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. But he clothes and covers Adam and Eve. This is a God who cares for them. And then in another act of divine mercy, in an act of mercy, God expels them from the garden. In fact, he tells us why. Now that they've sinned, I have to ensure they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever in a sinful, fallen state. That's the mercy of God. To keep them away from the tree of life until the serpent's head has been crushed. Then they can live forever. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In Genesis, therefore, we see the purpose of God set forth in these simple terms. Heaven and earth created to declare the wonders of God in harmony together. Man created in God's image to rule and have dominion. And a God who clothes, covers, and cares for man and has promised to crush the head of the deceiver. Are you with me? For thousands of years after that, mankind lived with, the, lived with and under the terrifying, terrible consequences of that fall. And as we read the big story, we find that the harmony of the garden quickly gives way to hatred, to hardship. There's conflict, there's murder, there's war, there's terror. Most men, as you read through, most men, because this is the story of just a small number of them, but most men know nothing of God. And those who do, the ones we read about most, they live constantly, if I could put it this way, they live constantly less than God intended. Falling, backsliding, following God, then turning away, living with frustration with fear, with an inability to fulfill their potential. That's a, terrible, that's a terrible consequence, isn't it? To live always less than you could be. They're surrounded by enemies. There is labor pain. There is painful labor. There are crops that fail, bodies that suffer disease and die prematurely. This is the world under the influence of the one that Jesus called the ruler of this world, who we read about in John 12. We'll come back to him. 
Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. The, 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 the awful story is of image bearers failing to live up to their original intention. But there is an ever-present glimpse of hope. Because God has promised change. God has promised a new order. The prophets speak of a Messiah, of a Savior. God had spoken of the offspring of Eve who will crush Satan's head. When we come to Luke's Gospel, you'll see that his genealogy, which is... um, in chapter 3 or 4, I think. Luke's genealogy, Luke, Luke's um, um, list of the, of the ascendants of Jesus, this genealogy, Luke carefully takes us, chapter 3, right back to Adam. He wants us to know Jesus is the offspring of Eve. His genealogy goes all the way back. Jesus knew exactly why he'd come. He set his face to Jerusalem. He knew he must die. He knew he would rise again. He knew the horror, the abandonment he would have to endure. When you when you read the description in in the Gospels of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you realize that Adam ate the forbidden fruit and he fell in the Garden of Eden. Jesus drinks the cup of suffering and he stands firm in the Garden of Gethsemane. From the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is taken to the high priest. We're in the end, I'm just referencing end of the Gospels now, Matthew 26. And then Jesus is taken to Pilate. And finally, he's led to a place called Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. It is the location that God has chosen for the crushing of Satan's head. Turn with me to John chapter 19, would you? John 19. We'll read a few verses just to take us right into the heart of the story here. John 19 and verse um, 16. So then, because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. Therefore, they took Jesus away, and carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. 
Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross, and the inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Just take you forward to verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day and Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day, they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who'd been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once blood and water came out. And he who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says they will look at the one they pierced. Friends, the cross is the epicenter of all things. It is the center point of the universe. It is the crossroads of time and eternity. And we will never know the full extent of what happened on the cross. It is, I believe, unfathomable for us. Um, but I want to draw our attention to four things I believe are very important. The first is this. On the cross, Jesus defeated every enemy. Amen. If we go back to John 12, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. NIV says, now the prince of this world will be thrown out. The New Living says, the time for, the judging, for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. In the Gospels, Jesus comes announcing a new kingdom. And he demonstrates the new kingdom by dealing with every sickness, every demon, every religious attitude, every pharisaical spirit, every injustice, every affront to God's will and God's order, every manifestation of the ruler of this world, Jesus confronts it. And that conflict with darkness reaches its climax at the cross where every demonic spirit, every evil power, every disease and sickness even comes together to try and kill him. In reality, the Lord of life is drawing every evil power to himself. And when he dies under their weight, 
He disarms them. He disables them. He dethrones them. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He disgraced them publicly, and He triumphed over them. Hebrews 2 verse 4 says, Jesus shared our humanity so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. Hallelujah. Jesus triumphed over every enemy. And according to John, this is why he came. This is the purpose. Did he take my place on the cross? Did he receive my punishment? Am I forgiven because of what happened? Of course I am. But his purpose in coming was to destroy the devil's work. Much bigger than my sin and your sin. It's to destroy every evil power. I believe God's wrath, God's anger, God's hatred is against sin and against the evil one who brought it into this world. Romans 8 is an important for us to look here. Romans 8, verses 1 to 3 say this. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain, and as a sin offering. God did not curse them, He clothed them. God did not condemn you, He condemned sin in the flesh of His Son. God judged sin so that He wouldn't judge us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus has triumphed over every enemy. Hallelujah. His kingdom has come, and it's a kingdom over the entire cosmic realm. Philippians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 say this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I've yet to discover where that is. <laughs> Colossians 1. There's a lot of scriptures in this section, but this is so important. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. We read this when we broke bread together on New Year's Day here. Wow, this is so good. Colossians 1. 19, for God was pleased, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him 
to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What Jesus did on the cross wasn't, didn't have an impact only on the earth. It had an impact in the entire universe. And everything on, in, on earth or in heaven, everything is reconciled to God because of the cross. It's unfathomable. Satan is overthrown. The cross has undone all his works. The blood of Christ has dealt with every evil. Jesus is risen with healing in his wings. The love of God has triumphed. Jesus has finished it all. Colossians says he's rescued us from the domain and darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I read this little, um, this little quote by a man called T. Austin Sparks. I love this. He says, the dethronement, the dethronement of Satan and of all his mighty kingdom was accomplished by the will of one man, capital M, being utterly in subjection to his Father. Amen. Amen. See, without the cross, the powers of darkness would still be ruling uh, without restraint, unlimited, unchecked. But instead now they are dethroned. They are cast out. God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. The supreme result of the cross is that the Son of God has taken his place of headship in the universe. I believe any lesser perspective is too small. Hallelujah. The second thing, I don't think Jesus accomplished a list of things. The second aspect I'd like to draw our attention to is this, that Jesus brought forth a whole new order of mankind. You know when Jesus, um, I'll come back to that. John 12, 24 says, I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. On the cross, God judged sin so we could know freedom and forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so we could be finally and fully clothed and covered. Because of the cross, as the hymn writer says, we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. But it doesn't end there. That's the start. The cross isn't an end in itself. The cross uh, leads to something. It led to something. And it made way for God's plan to unfold further. The Son of God was a seed that fell to the ground and died. And his resurrection brought forth a multitude of sons of God. Because of the cross, the church has been brought forth. I was talking to Deborah yesterday about what I might share this one. She says, you always bring it back to the church. Hallelujah. 
I stand guilty as charged. Innocent as charged. Because of the cross, the church has been brought forth. As Eve was brought forth from Adam's side, when Christ's side was pierced, blood flowed, the church came forth. A bride came for for Jesus, just as a bride had come for Adam. The church was created because of the cross. When you turn to Matthew chapter 16 and and you read of the, the first time Jesus talks about the cross, Matthew 16. By the way, when Jesus, when Jesus says, it is finished, he wasn't talking about his life. He's talking about the reign, the era of the reign of the ruler of this world. That's what finished. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus first mentions the church, first speaks of the church, following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, we take it from verse um, 16, Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The forces of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. The cross and the church are inextricably linked. Soon as Jesus describes the church, he tells them he must go to the cross. Because it's going to be the cross that will bring forth the church. And when Jesus was ascended and glorified, in John 7 he says, uh, when I am uh, glorified, then I'll pour out my spirit. When Jesus was ascended, when he was glorified, he poured out his spirit and he filled his church, with his power. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter says, God has resurrected this Jesus, and therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you now see and hear. The cross and the crown have brought forth a church, a multitude of sons of God, a royal priesthood, resurrection people, restored image bearers. In Ephesians chapter 2, there's a wonderful verse that tells us, verse 15, you okay keeping up? Ephesians 2, verse 15. It's talking about um, Jew and Gentile and um, what's happened. Verse 14 says, he is our, Christ is our peace, who's made both groups one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He did away with the law 
of the commandments and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two. The word that's used there, a new man, a new humanity, the word means something that didn't exist before. Jesus has brought forth a whole new humanity, a whole new species, a new species was created on the earth when the blood flowed, when the Spirit was poured out, Jesus brought forth a new humanity, a new species of men and women reborn in the image of God, filled with His Spirit. Restored image bearers. Hallelujah. Without the cross, folks, we would be lost, isolated, slaves to sin. Now we're sons of God. Royal priests, spirit-filled, resurrection people, restored image bearers. Jesus has brought forth a whole new order of redeemed mankind. You haven't been patched up. You've been born again. If anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old is gone. And don't ever belittle in your language, in your lifestyle, don't belittle what God has done. He's brought you forth as part of his new species, his new humanity. We've been rehumanized, reborn in God's image, and empowered to fill the earth and establish his kingdom. Hallelujah. The penultimate thing for this morning. The world was given hope because of the cross. Jesus says in John 12, 32, As for me, if if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify the kind of death he was about to die. What kind of death was it? It was the kind that lifted him up. It was the kind that draws all people to himself. The cross creates the church and sends the church on a mission to the ends of the earth to reach all people. The cross lifts Jesus up. The cross draws all men to Jesus. Therefore, isn't it the case that the cross lifts people up, dignifies them, gives them dignity. The Bible says that we've been raised with Christ. We must lift Jesus up. Because when Jesus is lifted up, He draws all men to Himself. If we're to succeed in our mission, we have to understand the heart of God. He made man in His image. He blessed him. It says in... um, In 2 Corinthians 5, it says he doesn't count men's trespasses against them. He doesn't curse and condemn us. He clothes and covers us. He's a loving God. His wrath, his anger, his condemnation, his judgment is against sin. And against the serpent who deceived mankind. John 3.16 says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And I read somebody recently said many people's thinking about the cross and the atonement is as if God so hated the world that he killed his son. 
God so loved the world that He gave us His Son to cover us, to clothe us. The world has hope through the church proclaiming the good news of the cross. You know, I believe as Jesus hung between heaven and earth, He was reuniting heaven and earth. The cross has dethroned the evil one. The cross makes possible the Lord's prayer that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We experience the powers of heaven. Signs, wonders, healings, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, provision, divine provision in health, divine protection on the road. Hearing God's voice. The cross has rejoined heaven and earth. The cross is not so much about enabling us to go to heaven, but about heaven coming to earth. Without the cross, there is no church and no hope for the world. But now the blessings of the cross are for all men everywhere. In my, um, in my readings of um, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, on the 1st of February, there was this little quote. It's a travesty to say that Jesus Christ travailed on the cross to make me a saint. Jesus Christ travailed to redeem the whole world and to place it unimpaired and rehabilitated before the throne of God. (laughs) I'm going to read that again. It's a travesty to say that Jesus Christ travailed on the cross to make me a saint. Jesus Christ travailed to redeem the whole world and place it unimpaired and rehabilitated before the throne of God. The last thing I want to say this morning that is on the cross, by the cross, through the cross, God was glorified. John 12, 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The cross is all about the glory of God. The word that's used, doxa, means his honor, his renown, his, his, the unspoken manifestation of God, the splendor of God. One feels inadequate trying to describe it. The cross shows us the glory of God. Creation is a revelation of God. The incarnation was a revelation of God. But as you'll certainly hear more over these next few weeks, the cross is the greatest revelation of the heart of God, of the purpose of God for His creation. On the cross, we see the master plan reaching its climax. On the cross, we see the full extent of His love. On the cross, we've seen the mind-blowing, breathtaking, earth-shattering relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. We see the Son obedient to death. We see the Father loving the Son and commanding the Spirit to raise Him up again. We see heaven and earth reunited. I say we see these things. We catch a glimpse. By the cross, God was glorified. It's His cross, not mine, not yours, not ours. This is His cross, and He glorified Himself on it. 
And he planned it before creation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that. The cross is the epicenter of all things. The center point of the universe. It stands at the crossroads of time and eternity as a perfect revelation of God's love and purpose. Above all things, the cross reveals the glory of God. His honor, His renown, His splendor. What's the cross all about? My forgiveness and salvation? Yes, but much more. Exchanging my sin for Christ's righteousness? Jesus taking my place, receiving something I deserved? Yes, but much more. God's judgment, His wrath turned away? Yes, but much more. God's honor being restored? Yes, but even more than that. The cross is the triumph of Jesus over every enemy. The cross is the headship of Jesus over the whole of the cosmos. The cross is the bringing forth of a new order of mankind. The cross is the hope of the world. The cross is the glory of God. Hallelujah. You know, we haven't really planned the next few months yet. We know that God's going to lead us. We're considering aspects of the wisdom of the cross, the power of the cross, the offense of the cross, the life of the cross. But wherever we go, I think, put the next slide up. These are some things I really hope will come out of this time together. First of all, awe. Wonder. Worship. If this isn't awe-inspiring, we're in big trouble. I hope a another measure of authenticity that as men and women secure in our identity we can live free share our lives live a resurrection community and a great sense of adventure that with fresh identity fresh appreciation of the dethronement of Satan. We can be about our mission with fresh faith, fresh power, with witness and works. It's going to be a fantastic new year. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harborough. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you.